another part of me is like you want to be a writer right so fucking write stop complaining and i'll open up scrivener and just read like the last like two or three paragraphs of something that i wrote something that i'm working on like one of the short stories i'll just get an idea like i'll think on it a little bit or sometimes you know almost right away i'll just like continue like flow into like the next paragraph and get an idea that i otherwise wouldn't have if i just didn't show up what up what up folks what's going on welcome to the spun today podcast the podcast that is anchored in writing but unlimited in scope i'm your host tony ortiz and i appreciate you listening this is episode 179 of the spun today podcast and in this episode i share my february and march 2021 writing stats i also share a writing tip that i picked up along the way i tell you about what i've been reading spoiler alert ready player two and a masterclass that I've been taking. I also read and reflect on a free writing piece of mine, which can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash free writing. But first, here's a very quick way that each and every one of you fine folks listening to this right now can help support this podcast if you so choose. If you do any shopping on Amazon, like most of the world, I ask that you do so by clicking on any of the Amazon banners on my website. This will take you to Amazon where you can do your shopping like you normally do. It will not cost you anything extra, but I will get credit for driving traffic to their website. All right, my writing stats. For those of you that listen to the free writing session episodes of this podcast, you know that I shared the writing stats that I've been keeping for myself on days that I write versus days that I don't write during every month. It's a very useful tool for me to keep myself honest in how much effort I'm putting into this craft of mine for tracking purposes in in general, input versus output, you know, like input being time spent writing or researching versus output being like stories, novels, short stories, books. And you can even use stats like this to drill down even deeper into patterns in your own behavior. Like, oh shit, on Thursdays, I never write. And I didn't even notice that. Or I'm always writing consistently on Mondays and Tuesdays. Let me try to replicate what I'm doing those days on a different day where I'm not writing as much consistently. Anyway, with that said, I'm carrying over the same excuse that I gave you all towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year. With writing a lot less, having now two kids, one of them being a newborn, shout out baby Grayson, who is now six months old, but still not sleeping through the night as we would like, which obviously impacts my schedule a little bit, but so be it. So I say that to ease you into the abysmal numbers that I have for February of 2021, but don't worry, I set my game up a bit for March of 2021. And here we go. In February 2021, I wrote 9 out of the 28 days of the month for a writing percentage of 32.14%. Then I stepped it up a bit in March, where I wrote 21 out of the 31 days of the month, pretty strong month, writing month, for a writing percentage of 67.7%. What I'm working on specifically are a couple different things. The continuation to my debut novel, Fractal, as you all know, constantly thinking on it and plotting and writing, not writing as much as I would want to for that piece, bumping into some barriers and writer's block, but chipping away at it slowly but shortly. And then I'm also working on two separate short stories, kind of sort of at the same time, both of which, well, definitely one of which, because I'm very far along in one, but both of which you guys will probably read and hear the audiobook versions of before my completion of the continuation of Fractal, which I know in a way is like a distraction, something that Resistance with a capital R, shout out to Stephen Pressfield, could do to you in taking you away from your main focus, in my case, you know, continuing book two, even though technically I am writing and being productive in a different area, but it is also, two things can be true at the same time, taking me away from that. But I do believe that it's helping the flow of creative juices, if you will, which 
will spill over into momentum that I can carry into continuing that book. And it's also a notch on the old discipline belt, you know, showing up, which I know Stephen Pressfield and uh, Stephen King are big on, you know, have a routine, have a schedule, show up, whether you have ideas or not, just show up to do the work. And in doing so, you prompt the muse, if you will, to drop some gems. And I can really attest to that because there have been nights where I'm like, all right, where did I leave off in the story? I don't know. I don't even know. I don't feel like writing. But another part of me is like, you want to be a writer, right? So fucking write. Stop complaining. And I'll open up Scrivener and just read like the last like two or three paragraphs of something that I wrote, something that I'm working on, like one of the short stories. I'll just get an idea. Like I'll think on it a little bit or sometimes you know almost right away i'll just like continue like flow into like the next paragraph and get an idea that i otherwise wouldn't have if i just didn't show up because i didn't have it before showing up it was only once i showed up got into the mindset of all right let me do this and some of them are really good ideas to me at least obviously i'm biased but they're ideas that i'm like oh shit that is that's pretty cool i mean trust me i have a lot of shitty ideas as well <laughs> probably more so than the good ones but whatever it's just a testament to showing up and i feel that even though i'm taking time away from writing book two the process of writing in general even if it's on these short stories definitely has its positives as well and those are my writing stats next up is a writing tip and this tip comes from the prolific joanna penn writer and host of the creative pen podcast and it's from a recent post on her website And as always, I will link to the actual article in the episode notes so that you can read it in its full context. I'm going to share with you on here a couple of excerpts that spoke to me. Your book is a valuable intellectual property asset. That is the title of the post. And she starts it off with a quote from Christine Catherine Rush in Rethinking the Writing Business. Quote, writers do not sell books. We license copyright, end quote. Many authors think that when they finish a manuscript, they have just one book to show for it. But it is much more than that. Once the penny drops on how rights licensing works, you will truly see the value in your writing and understand why publishers want to pay you for it. This is just an overview of copyright. So please read these suggested books and resources listed below to empower yourself further in this important area and as usual she she cites a bunch of sources a bunch of different books to check out and she's had folks on her podcast that have written some of these books they can obviously gain insight from as well so check that out if you're interested but let me keep reading on a bit more this is an excerpt from how to make a living with your writing turn your words into multiple streams of income which is one of joanna's books what is a copyright quote Copyright is a legal device that provides the creator of a work of art or literature or a a work that conveys information or ideas, the right to control how the work is used, end quote. And that's from Stephen Fishman in the Copyright Handbook. And Joanna goes on to write, you have copyright in your work once it exists in tangible form. It's not necessary to register your manuscript but it may provide more protection in any legal disputes if you do. As the copyright holder, you control how the work is used. You license the right to reproduce the book, to distribute and sell it, to create adaptations and derivative works, for example, screenplays or translations, and or to perform or display the work in public. And this all, by the way, plays into my whole mantra of not turning away your IP and trying to work out licensing deals instead. Let me continue reading. You don't have to license everything all at once to the same company. And in fact, you usually don't want to. The best way to make money with your copyright is to carve it up into different slices and make the most of every piece. As Dean Wesley Smith says in The Magic Bakery, Quote, say you write a novel. The novel is the pie. The copyright is what you license from the pie. 
the pieces of the pie. You never sell the entire pie, end quote. And Joanna goes on to say, you can slice your copyright pie up in different ways. One slice might be paperback rights for UK Commonwealth in English, which you license to a traditional publisher. Another slice might be worldwide English ebook rights, which you decide to license non-exclusively to specific distributors like Amazon for Kindle, Kobo, Apple, and Google Play, as well as selling direct to readers from your website. Which, by the way, you're not allowed to do if you have some sort of exclusivity. You can't sell your own book from your own website. Yet another slice might be South Korean language and territory rights to ebook, paperback, and hardback editions for a limited term of seven years. All for the same book with many more slices of the pie remaining. In broad terms, Think about format, language, territory or country, and time frame. You can slice the pie up in as many ways as you can imagine. It's magic because you receive money for a slice, and then it can return to you later in order to license all over again. For example, and this is her quoting from her own example, I licensed German ebook rights to one of my novels several years ago, and the rights returned to me after three years, so I could continue selling it myself, or relicense it if, if preferred. So think about that scenario versus like a, a traditional publishing deal where you just, you write a book, sign a deal for X amount of dollars, relinquishing all your rights to the book in perpetuity. Has she done that when writing that one novel, which by the way, she has like, I think now she's up to almost two dozen novels. But with that one novel, if she would have done that from the get-go and just signed her rights away to some publisher, the publisher would have been doing this. The publisher would have been making a licensing deal with Germany for ebook rights. And then with South Korea, the paperback and ebook rights within that region, et cetera, et cetera. And she wouldn't be getting a dime from any of that. But again, when licensing, you hold on to the IP in perpetuity. So you can continue doing this over and over and over again as opposed to a one-and-done type of scenario. Then she goes on to say, and I'll finish up with this, this is even more magical for short stories, which you can license for reprint and anthologies multiple times after the first serial rights. You can find more detail on different rights licensing in the Copyright Handbook by Stephen Fishman. And then the post goes on to have a few other sections like why is it important to understand rights licensing and won't my agent handle all this? The short answer is maybe, but also for a 15% commission. She has another section called selective rights licensing or the hybrid model. And let me just read you this quick paragraph. JK Rowling, which you all know is the writer and creator of Harry Potter and the most, the wealthiest writer in history. She retained her digital rights to Harry Potter. So she published, you know, signed over the publishing for like the paperback and, you know, it has a deal for like merchandising and stuff like that. But she kept, she retained, she sliced her pie and retained the digital rights to Harry Potter. And she started her company Pottermore in 2008 to distribute ebooks and audiobooks. So digital rights, meaning that ebooks, electronic books, and audiobooks, as opposed to just signing all of that as like a bundle over to her publisher and moving into other partnerships and business ventures over time. According to Financial Times in June of 2017, that business is now worth 25 billion with a B dollars. And that is my writing tip for this episode. Again, the name of the post is your book is a valuable intellectual property asset. It's from Joanna Penn's thecreativepen.com website. And as always, I will link to it in the episode notes. What I've been reading. So I've been reading, finally, Ready Player Two, which was written by Ernest Klein. And if you guys listen to this podcast, you know that I loved Ready Player One, both the book and the movie. And it was one of those movies where it actually did do the book justice. But, as cliche as it sounds, the book was still better. But the movie was fucking great. 
and I know that's like a cliche thing to say, oh, you know, the book is better than the movie. And that, you know, it's like a douchey thing to say just to let people know that you fucking read, which is really not my intent. I just want to highlight how brilliant of a book it is and how awesome Ernest Klein is for writing it. And to write a book, by the way, and to have it become a movie on the big screen, that's like obviously a bucket list dream of mine and probably of most writers. But on top of that, to have Steven Spielberg direct it, that has to be fucking mind blowing. And what's really cool about how I even learned about Ready Player One was from listening to a podcast. I forget which one, but I remember it being a being prompted to want to read it because the source that recommended it was a very unlikely source. And again, I wish I could remember who it was that recommended it, but I can't, but I do remember the sentiment. It was like a, like a heady, like one of those like intellectual Rowan interviews, or it was like a Sam Harris podcast. And it came from that source. You know, it wasn't like a a podcast of like a round table of science fiction writers or something like that, where it would make sense. But like the juxtaposition between the person that recommended it and it being a science fiction novel made me like take a step back and say oh shit what that person's recommending this oh let me check it out thankfully i did and from the first book even like it like motivated me to finish fractal which i had already started at that point if i'm not mistaken but i borrowed a lot from it like just the pacing and certain storytelling methods and dialogue that i'm sure i internalized and applied to fractal so huge shout out to ernest klein and it was as far as i knew a standalone novel he obviously left it open to for a continuation and i'm sure that the blockbuster success of it prompted or at least helped make that decision to uh, continue it with the ready player two so if you guys haven't checked out Ready Player One, please do check out at least the movie, definitely the book. And if you liked it as much as I did, you'll really enjoy Ready Player Two as well. It's a continuation of a lot of the same. Obviously, it's you know within the same world and it checks off so many of the nostalgia boxes of 80s and 90s pop culture, like movies and video games, it plays around with futuristic technology and sort of a one becoming one with the machines type of trope. And it's just a fun read. So let me read to you guys the official synopsis of Ready Player Two. The highly anticipated sequel to the beloved worldwide bestseller Ready Player One. The near future adventure that inspired the blockbuster Steven Spielberg film. An unexpected quest. Two worlds at stake. Are you ready? Days after winning Oasis founder James Halliday's contest, Wade Watts makes a discovery that changes everything. Hidden within Halliday's vaults, waiting for his heir to find, lies a technology advancement that will once again change the world and make the Oasis a thousand times more wondrous and addictive than even Wade dreamed possible. So let me pause right there real quick. So like you guys know from Ready Player One, where it's a near future world where, and by world, I mean like here on earth, but in the near future, but the world that Ernest Klein constructed within his book is what I mean. So it takes place in the near future. Virtual reality is like a big thing, you know, like Oculus Rift and stuff like that. But it's so prevalent within society that people spend the majority of their time or close to it within the Oasis either as an escape, the Oasis is the name of this virtual reality world, either as an escape or school, for example, like kids go to school now in the Oasis. So they wear this headset and, you know, they're in this virtual classroom environment and that's how they go to school. It's used as uh, babysitting, uh, for work, you know, to, for, to exercise, everything. And it's just like really immersive environment. After... Wade wins James Halliday's contest and becomes the the heir to the Oasis. He finds this vault in the Anorak's castle that he uh, inherited. And in it is this new technology. It's not like the VR headset and or like the hap- haptic rigs and haptic suits that folks wear so that while they're in the virtual environment, they can like feel touch and stuff like that. 
this is another type of headset, a newer technology, a different technology called ONI. And, you know, it comes with all the instructions and stuff like that. And he tries it and it's even more immersive experience than like the regular Oasis headsets from before. And it's like some Neuralink type of thing because you don't even need like the haptic suits or anything like that. And it allows you, it records your experiences somehow. So, and allows other people to relive your experiences, not see your experiences, but relive them as you. It does like this great thing, like some of the positives at least, like this great thing in terms of like empathy and like people could be like, oh, let me see what it's like to be a woman and literally download the experience of being a woman, like on some matrix shit and or like being trans or doing heroin and it's that much more immersive but obviously that much more addictive so i just wanted to interject that there let me continue on with the synopsis with it comes a new riddle and a new quest a last easter egg from halliday hinting at a mysterious prize and an unexpected impossibly powerful and dangerous new rival awaits one who will kill millions to get what he wants. So if you guys remember from Ready Player One, let me interject again. The bad guy was Nolan Sorrento, which was the head of IOI, which was like the big bad corporation within that world, you know, doing what corporations do, prioritizing the bottom line to the nth degree, regardless of what it means like to humanity and stuff like that. And bastardizing the Oasis experience, like with ads and et cetera, et cetera. But they were like the biggest entity within the the Oasis and the real world, aside from James Halliday, who created the Oasis, and uh, eventually Wade Watts, who inherited it, the Oasis, by winning James Halliday's initial Easter egg hunt. Long story short, Nolan Sorrento goes to jail. At the end, after trying to literally kill wade and he did kill wade's like aunt and blew up like the building that he was in he used to live in and if he wasn't able to win halliday's prize using like the thousands of employees that he had working around the clock to try to break the riddles and win the easter egg he was willing to and did like kill everybody in the oasis like their virtual avatars anyway that dude goes to jail and this unexpected and possibly powerful and dangerous new rival which the synopsis mentions i'm not going to spoil it for you guys who it is or what it is but he it winds up freeing nolan sorrento from prison literally seamlessly busting him out and pretty much has millions of users of the oasis hostage because they can't log out and they have these extremely immersive ONI headsets on, which automatically log you out after like 12 hours or so. It's like the max before you start having like seizures and headaches and fucked up shit starts happening to you. Um, but he pretty much has everyone hostage and won't let them log out unless this new last Easter egg riddle gets solved for him. And let me finish off with the synopsis here. Wade's life and the future of the Oasis are again at stake. But this time, the fate of humanity also hangs in the balance. Lovingly nostalgic and wildly original, as only Ernest Klein could conceive it, Ready Player Two takes us on another imaginative, fun, action-packed adventure through his beloved virtual universe and jolts us thrillingly into the future once again. And I couldn't agree more. I highly recommend you guys check it out. Ready Player Two by Ernest Klein. If you're interested, use my affiliate link, which is in the episode notes of this episode. That will take you directly to Amazon where you can get the paperback, hardcover, or audiobook. Ready Player Two. Check it out. So as you guys know, I take a bunch of master classes. I signed up for that like yearly pass where you can take as many as you want. Um, and I re-signed up again. I re-read up when my subscription ended. Uh, because I feel like I get like, so much out of it, and I definitely highly recommend. And what I do is, as I take the classes, you know, I take notes for myself on things that resonate that I want to apply to my own writing, 
and just things that I find interesting. Then I re-go through the notes for the podcast and I highlight certain sections of my notes so that I can share it with you guys. And that's what I'll be sharing today. And this is from Walter Mosley's masterclass. Walter Mosley teaches fiction and storytelling. He's an extremely prolific writer that I had never heard of before this. What I like to do though is everyone within like the writing section of masterclass, like I check out like their little trailer that they have. And if I'm feeling it, I take the class. And there was just something about Walter's like energy and, and how he comes off that made me want to take his class. And he definitely did not disappoint. And I'm really glad that I did. So I'll just be sharing some random sections that I highlighted here from my notes. The first one is he wrote the first sentence down randomly, which made him believe he could be a writer when he was 34 years old. So all of you thinking, you know, I'm too old to start writing and stuff like that. Who gives a fuck? Just do it. Stephen Pressfield, by the way, he tried writing like throughout his life to little to no success, commercial success, like his first big break, which was, I think was a legend, uh, Bagger Vance, like his first popular book that also became a movie. I think he was in his four, I think he was 50, to be honest, 50 or 50 something. He's like in his late, mid to late 60s now, I believe. But he was like either in his late 40s, mid to late 40s or 50s already. So all that like mentality of, you know, you have to be writing from like the womb. Don't listen to all that. Everybody's different. People do things at their own pace. If you want to write, write. Anyway, he started when he was 34 years old. And since he has published 60, 60, 60 books. That's fucking amazing. He said, if you're afraid to write the novel, okay, but write the novel. I'm not asking you to not be afraid, but take the jump. And the way he writes, his uh, process, which, uh, which I, I like getting into uh, with like writers and creatives is as follows. He wakes up on most days around 5 or 6 a.m. He writes a thousand words each day which takes him approximately three hours. Then the next day, he reads those thousand words and makes minor edits and then writes a thousand more. You know, Tarantino has a, a similar process as well, which is interesting. Like that three hour mark seems to be like some sort of sweet spot, at least for the folks that, who's writing I'm into. Tarantino wakes up, I don't remember the time, but I want to say he just wakes up when he wakes up and he writes like on a balcony in his house, like an outdoor balcony that overlooks his pool. And I think he said he writes for three hours and then he takes a swim in the pool, has lunch, goes about his day. And the next day continues where he left off, etc., And just rinse and repeat, continues that process. Uh, what else do I have here? Um, learn about your characters as you write them. This layers and complicates them. This is something that, that I do um, of the... I don't know, type of writer, if, if you can call it that, that doesn't outline much. And I kind of let the the characters develop and speak to each other and let them become who they're going to become. Um, but I never thought of it from the perspective of this layers and complicates them, which people like that, right? As uh, a reader, as an audience, you want complex, deep characters, not just very surface vanilla characters. And I get that makes sense that it does complicate and layer the characters when you go about letting them develop as you write. And he goes on to say, in the beginning, you know who your character is, where he or she is right now. The only question is where he's going to get. And you don't need to know that in the beginning. Where he's going to get to is the novel. What else did I write down here? Uh, story is what... Ha okay, this was an interesting breakdown. Story, this is story versus plot. And something I appreciated about Walter's his like the his economy of words, the precision by which he explains certain things that other writers that I've listened to and that I've read explain similar or the same concepts, but in like convoluted ways that I'm kind of like, what? What the fuck? What's the difference between story and plot? And I feel like in a couple different places he made me get it. Also with like narrative uh, POV point of view, which I'll I'll get to in a bit. He explained that very well also. But here's what he had to say about story versus plot. Story is what happens. Plot is 
when the reasons it happens is revealed to the reader. Like how it happens, why it happens. So that's what plot is. Story is what happens. Plot is how and why it happened. Okay, next up is the POV. Narrative is whose POV is the story told from. Third person narrative is a per- a person, proverbially, is sitting on the shoulder of the characters. And since they are not that character, they don't have the emotional responses of that character, but they see it and explain it. And they have insight into what the character is thinking. In this POV, the narrator, quote unquote, can jump off of one person's shoulder and onto another character's shoulder. Another type of narration is a universal narrator, which is like God. They know everything and anything about what's going on. And another one is first person, which is just the point of view from one character's point of view. But what was interesting, which I hadn't thought of, was you can change the narration throughout the book. For example, if you want to do first person, you could do like one chapter from one person's first person point of view. You don't have to write the entire book from that one person's point of view. Then the next chapter could be a different person's point of view, etc. Something else that made sense to me was as much as possible, go beyond being expository. Use Kang 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 instead of two metal cans smashed together in the distance. Show what's being seen by the main character and or narrator. So this plays into the whole show, don't tell mentality that most writers have going beyond being expository and and relying on exposition, which obviously you need to a degree. But there's different ways to get certain scenes across that don't have to be completely spelled out and explained in like textbook format. You know, in the example he gave by using the Kang 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 verbiage, you convey the same idea to the reader of two metal cans smashed together in the distance without having to spell it out and while also allowing the reader's imagination to work. I saw this really great three-part PBS documentary on Hemingway called Hemingway recently that I'll probably do a review or recap of during one of the uh, Random Rant episodes. But something from that that I can draw a parallel to this point is there was a writer who was giving feedback on one of Hemingway's uh, short stories, and he put forth this important point where he says that he believes the job of a writer is to provide just enough words, just enough description, just enough exposition, so that the reader has enough to work with to then fill in the rest of the story using their imagination. And in doing so, play out a movie in their minds. And that movie is going to be different from reader to reader to reader. And I thought that was pretty dope. Here is something else that I took away from Walter Mosley's masterclass, which is if you have language that is almost prose in poetry, then in prose, you can write language that is almost poetry. Now, me personally, I'm pretty dense when it comes to poetry. Like, it doesn't permeate, usually. But this definitely resonated with me for a couple reasons. When I was younger, especially, what I tried to write was poetry. Whether it be just, like, poems to girls or a way that I was trying to express a certain thought. That's the way I, like, tried doing it. And by poetry, I I use that term very loosely. It was just, like, paragraphs that had some rhyming words within it. (laughs) And I remember even back when I, I used to uh, be a busboy and wait tables and bartend and stuff. And even back then, I remember I would have just like random thoughts of what I would jot down and in parentheses put PP, possible poem. And it was like the seed of a thought. And it was like the title of something. Or I would think of a sentence and I would like jot it down in the order book that I would take orders with. And I had tons and tons of those like little scraps of papers that I would just like rip off, put in my pocket and usually never even like revisit to actually write out the the possible poem. And also I was told once that my writing sounds Dr. Seussish, 
like it has like a, a rhythm and a flow to it in that way which i took as a compliment <laughs> who knows if, if it was meant as such but i'm also drawn like one of my favorite parts of writing is writing dialogue and there is a sing-songy like rhythm to good dialogue that uh i definitely like definitely resonates with me and that i gravitate towards so this definitely made sense to me then he was talking about alice walker's the color purple and he mentioned that she was a very good writer and this is uh, what i jotted down from what he said quote she was a very good writer and i still had a lot to learn to get to that place but still i could imagine getting to the place of writing that language which is really encouraging right and that has also happened to me uh, i guess you know that's why i jotted this down as kind of like a reinforcement of certain thoughts that, I, that i've had when like reading someone's work or watching a tv show you're completely engaged in it in it and with me for example you know i get lost in tv shows like everybody else obviously and in books and stuff but i'm also looking at it from the perspective of the actual craft of what goes into actually writing it how was this decision made so in my mind, I'm like peeking behind the curtain and saying, oh, I would I, I would take this next scene in this direction or what have you. And when things like that have happened, I find myself thinking along the same lines, like I'm not at that level yet, but it's written in such a way that gives me hope because I like get it and I know I can reach that level and write as well or close to it as some of the writers that that I respect and look up to within the space. Another takeaway I have here from lesson nine is, oh, th- th- this was an interesting one. You don't need to read a lot to be a good writer. Just tell a good story, deep, powerful. Reading is very important, one of the most important things, but not doing it will not stop you from being a writer. There's something from, I believe it's a quote from Stephen King, and I believe it's from On Writing, the book that I'm always referencing here on the podcast, which is an, a phenomenal read. You guys should definitely check out, especially if you're into writing or, or want to be. But a uh, famous quote of his is, and it's true of a lot of writers, that you need to read a lot to have the tools to be able to write. And they liken it to, you know, not doing so is like bringing a knife to a gunfight type of, type of thing. And I'll be honest with you. I, the reason why I, I jotted this down and it spoke to me, the fact that you don't need to read a lot to be a good writer is that I was never big on reading before. Like even in high school, like all the books that, you know, teachers would assign to you in class to read, I never, ever read a book, ever. I would look up like, uh, uh, you know, I would get by assignments, like maybe read a chapter or two when necessary, when it was like specific like that, or if we had to do like a book report, I would look up like the cliff notes, shout out pinkmonkey.com, I think. (laughs) was a go-to source back then and I was never into reading like that but I was into attempting to express myself through writing now he does go on to say that reading is very important and it's one of the most important things which is true and as I've gotten older and I've gotten more into reading especially you know shout out to audiobooks but also just like actual reading like you see the importance in it but I appreciate that he highlights that you don't have to be that you don't have to be again the person that started writing from the from the womb and started reading from the womb and was a book nerd and reads a book a week in order to be a writer me personally like i'm not into any of these this is what you need to be this is what you need to do to be that type of mandatory tropes maybe that's like the creative leave me alone side of me but i appreciate that someone as accomplished as walter mosley also recognizes that And then he goes on to like give examples, you know, there could be like a guy in the corner talking to his friends that has never read a a book in his life, but just tells, captivates the audience that he's speaking to in the way he tells stories. And all writing is, is storytelling. And let's see, then I jotted down that I love his energy, which I do, Walter Mosley. And when speaking to how to deal with prejudice in the industry. He says something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing, that you just have to realize that sometimes you're going to get hit and accept it as part of the game. And that made sense to me. I mean, that Walter Mosley, he's a, 
Uh, his father was black. His mother was Jewish. But he was speaking to not just that type of uh, racial prejudice, but the way that folks try to like box you in. And, you know, his first popular book was like a mystery novel. But then he also wrote science fiction. And then he also wrote nonfiction and like editors, um, uh, publishers rather, you know, try to box you in. If you write a successful mystery book, they say, write that, keep repeating that for the rest of your life. And sometimes as a creative, you know, you want to express yourself in different ways and share different parts of yourself. He explained stories of, he was like, all right, fine, that's fine. I'll publish my mystery novels with you and I'll go somewhere else and do the, the science fiction stuff and I'll go somewhere else to a different publisher and do the nonfiction stuff. But he's, he said in taking that type of feedback and, and prejudice of trying to like box you in and stuff like that as just getting hit, like that's part of the game and you go with the flow and you just continue doing what you set out to do anyway. And I think that's true of a lot of champions and successful people. Like they have that type of mentality of the peaks come with the valleys and vice versa. And I just have a couple more things to share from the masterclass. This one is the more you write, the closer you get to your core, the person within you. The more you write, the more talented and capable you become and the better the ability to control yourself will be. Writing about an idea or a character, or a feeling you're trying to get across, that process will help you learn about you, who you are, how you see the world around you. And I couldn't agree more. That's, uh, I think, to an extent, what we're all searching for, like in life in general, and especially as writers or creatives, trying to get more so to the core of who you are. And then lastly, I'll close with this. He says in relation to choosing a career, being a writer, that this life promises two things, happiness and heartbreak. Then he adds that everyone, he tells a story about a friend of his that, you know, worked, you know, had a successful career financially and, you know, was the type of person that was like a workaholic, worked around the clock all the time on call. And then he was getting ready to retire and he was speaking with his friend and Walter's take was, oh, great. Now, you know, um, any of the like hobbies and stuff like that that you've had, you can focus more on that and, and you know, don't have to worry about financial stuff and, you know, like really follow a passion. And that his friend came back with that he never got into anything, never had any hobbies, never had any passions. It was just like work, 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 all work, no play. And he found that Walter did uh, devastating. And then to that, he said that he feels everyone should have an art or passion that's just for them, that nobody could ever take away from them. And they could not agree more. Hence the Sponsor Day podcast, Fractal, Make Way For You, Sponsor.com forward slash short stories, Sponsor.com forward slash free writing, and the constant sharing and thought process behind what we were speaking about before in relation to not selling your IP so that you can continue to own the things that you create reap the benefits from them financially if you ever get to that point, but mainly so that you can continue doing what you want to do when you want to do it. And that is my recap of Walter Mosley teaches fiction and storytelling, the masterclass. I will link to it in the episode notes in case you guys want to check it out. The free writing piece that I'm going to share with you guys today, I wrote five days, six days technically, after the murder of George Floyd. And I think it's important that we call it a murder because that's what it was. I'm sharing it now. It's been posted on, on my website for like almost a year, but I'm sharing it now on the podcast because the main police officer responsible, Derek Chauvin, was recently found guilty by a 12-member jury of all three charges against him, which were second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. Personally, before I read and reflect on what I wrote a year ago, I think it was the right decision. And I am not a defund the police guy, but I am a hold motherfuckers accountable for what they do guy. I very much so respect law enforcement and the men and women that are actual heroes and do their jobs the way they're supposed to do their jobs and put their lives on the line for each and every one of us day in and day out. 
my best friend, godfather to my second child is a police officer. And I have half a dozen of friends, some closer than others, that are also police officers, a couple of which have been on this podcast. I do believe there are tons of issues, especially around training, when it comes to these heroes of ours that we put out in the field and issues around the expectations of what they are expected to deal with and juggle with. They have to deal with the prospect of car accidents and having EMT type knowledge. They have to deal with thieves and drug addicts and drug dealers and killers and domestic disputes and child abuse cases. They have to be expected to be fucking psychologists and social workers on the fly. One call to the next. It's fucking amazing what they do, if you think of it. But as I've said before, and I'll say again, as in every profession across the face of the planet, from people in finance to attorneys to police officers to doctors to firemen to clergy to whomever, there is a spectrum of people always in everything, in every single walk of life. There's a spectrum of people, people that are the best at what they do and people that are the worst at what they do and should not be doing what it is that they do, period. Derek Chauvin was one of these people, in my opinion, and obviously in the opinion of the 12 members of the jury that found him guilty on all three charges of second degree murder, third degree murder, and manslaughter. But to circle back on me not being like a defund the the police uh, within that camp, I am more in the camp of more funding for the police that's specifically earmarked to training. I'm in the camp of folks like Jocko Willink when it comes to that. Retired Navy SEAL who speaks a lot to this. I'm in the camp of some of the Gracies who believe in like jujitsu training for police officers. Andrew Yang running for mayor now in New York. Yang Gang who believes that police officers should have a minimum of a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I couldn't agree more with. There's a stat out there, which I'm going to fuck up, you know, fact check this, but it's something like if you're a blue belt in jiu-jitsu, which is the belt under a purple belt, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's white, blue, purple, brown, and then black. But if you're a purple belt, if you're a blue belt, again, the belt under the purple belt, which Andrew Yang believes police officers should be at, you're something like you can subdue, I think it's like 65 or 75% of all people, all, you know, normal, you know, everyday people, the masses, the most of us, the people that police officers deal with, you can physically subdue them. That's an initiative that some of like that extra money for funding and training can go to for police officers. Me personally, I also think you have to incentivize police officers, you know, make that, you know, if you make the, like the bottom requirement a purple belt or if you decide to make it a blue belt instead tie belt rank which again it's a martial art it's your ability to defend yourself as well as the perpetrator that you need to subdue safely not injuring yourself not injuring them or anyone else and protecting anyone else that they may potentially be violent towards so your ability to do so is directly tied to your martial arts ability within this realm right so i think it should also be incentivized in financially for police officers who again also with all that they do don't get paid shit comparatively give them automatic bumps in salary based on their rank and obviously you need like a structure in place of the funding is going to pay towards you know these schools which have been you know like accredited you know legit jujitsu schools not like some dude and his garage practicing jujitsu and teaching people and says, yeah, here, you're a black belt now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like legit schools have the infrastructure in place where, you know, you are able to choose from legit schools in your area that will be paid for similar, similar to um, tuition reimbursements, like uh, with like finance jobs and shit like that. They won't, won't reimburse, you know, Ronald McDonald university, but you go to an accredited university that's legit within certain uh, fields of study they'll pay for it. Similarly, that should apply within this space. And the automatic bonuses is if an, a police officer goes extra hard and you know goes up the ranks, gets a, a few stripes on his white belt, then becomes a blue belt, then becomes a purple belt, give bonuses, like automatic increased bonuses, not like year end, now we'll review. Like, no, you get a fucking blue stripe in 
in March of 2021 on your white belt, here's two grand. You make it to blue belt, here's five grand on your yearly salary. He, you make it a purple belt, here's an immediate 10 grand. Whether you do that in six months, in six years, whatever it takes. Like have those incentives in place. But anyway, I digress. And then circling back to Chauvin and, and you know, folks stating, uh, like I followed the case fairly closely. Like I watched hours and hours of it live from jury selection to the actual trial to closing arguments, et cetera. I have my own issues with like the legal system in general, but I guess it gets it right more so than it gets it wrong. But like the the sentiment of, oh, he was a drug user. Um, uh, he has a history. He he put a gun to the belly of a pregnant woman once uh, trying, trying to rob her. All true, all egregious piece of shit things to do. He wasn't doing them at that time. Like it wasn't like the cops rolled up and he had a gun on a pregnant woman at that time. Like they're conflating past occurrences and and fucked up shit that the dude did to try to just like write him off and be like, oh, look, this was a bad guy. So he deserves to die. Like, no, my man, you're a cop. Your job is to protect and serve. And at this point, at this juncture, what you're supposed to do, you and the other three cops that are with you, putting aside the fact that. The cops are called because he used a $20 bill, a uh, counterfeit $20 bill at a fucking uh, grocery store. Putting all that aside, like all the, the nonsense they even led up to this. Cops arrive on a scene. They don't know all that, right? Uh, but they pull pull up his rap sheet, if they did. And they see, you know, he's a, a, dr- a drug addict, a, a user, you know, had these incidents with, with guns before. They have to be on heightened alert. I agree with that 100%. Do what you got to do to control the situation. After you have him on the ground, and not one, not two, three cops on his back and the neck, which we now saw from the trial from seeing uh, different angles, like the surveillance footage from the gas station from across the street, the other officers' uh, body cams, three people on him and handcuffed behind his back. That's it. That's it, dog. You did your job. Get up, get off, throw him in the back of the fucking car, drive him to the police precinct, book him, and you're done then go back on the road, go continue doing your job, not continue laying on his neck, denying EMTs that were there. Uh, there was one, um, uh, she was off duty. She testified. She was, a. I don't think it's called the EMT, but the like medical unit of the fire department. She was there. She explained who she was. She said she could help. She could give him CPR. She can give him assistance. They denied that. And, you know, laying on somebody's neck, which some people are saying, oh, no, he was on his neck. He was on his back, even if he was on his fucking back for not eight minutes and 46 seconds. But it was like nine minutes and 20 something seconds. That was clearly the cause of death, as corroborated by doctors during the trial and exacerbatedly so because he the uh, one doctor even explained that he wasn't not only did he have his neck, not only did he have his knee on his neck, but his foot from that knee was up off the ground. So it's not just the weight from, from his knee and lo- like lower torso. It's the full weight of his entire body on his neck. But I digress from that. The maximum sentencing, he's going to be sentenced in about eight weeks from the conviction date. So roughly about two months away. And the other three police officers that were there on scene they're also going to trial and their trials are in like August, I believe. My understanding that the maximum sentence for second degree murder is in Minneapolis is 40 years. The lowest it can be is like 12 and a half years. And I've heard like different things related to sentencing. And I don't know who's right, to be honest. But some folks are saying that since the second degree murder is the like highest charge, that's what the sentencing is going to be based on. So it's either going to be the 12 and a half years or all the way up to the 40 years. I've heard also that if he has no offenses, prior offenses, which he doesn't, Derek Chauvin, that the max he can get is the 12 and a half years because it's a first offense. I've also heard, you know, the other sentencing, like the third degree murder, which I think is like 25 years and the manslaughter, which I think is like 10 years max. Um, I've heard two schools of thought on that, that like all the sentencing can be applied, like he, he can get theoretically like the 40 years for the second degree the 25 years on top of that for the third degree etc or they can all like run concurrently so you could just get 40 years and that'll cover the 25 years of the third degree as well as the manslaughter etc i don't know 
but I am definitely looking to see what the sentencing plays out to be because it feels like a victory in that yes and a victory in the sense of you know him actually being held accountable for what he did in that yes he was convicted of all three charges but that can get undone really quick if he gets a max of like the 12 and a half years and winds up you know getting out in like six or seven or however the fuck that works me personally as i've said in the past it's not a a popular opinion but when it comes to this type of shit i'm like an eye for an eye you take a life your life is done and not necessarily and i mean this for like the most egregious scum of the scum of the scum of the earth in our society like the killers and murderers and rapists and molesters and shit like that like once you do something like that your life is done and i don't mean it in go to the electric chair i don't mean it in life in prison i mean your body should be donated to science you guys want to find a a fucking cure to coronavirus go test a bunch of shit out on this motherfucker and do some human testing on his ass because his life is done he gave up his life because of killing x y and z so it's going to be interesting to see what he's actually sentenced to and how things play out with the other police officers that were there. Because technically, if this guy is sentenced for murder, what are they accomplices to murder? You know, like, how does that work? Also, there's that weird line between, like, your superiors and, and work. And let's see. Let's see how that plays out. Would it, we Most folks that are on the side of this argument that I'm on really want to see, though, is... And we're starting to see uh, some changes is, you know, actual changes to like police reform, like in terms of training and stuff like that, like the things that I spoke about earlier, changes to uh, legal repercussions, such as qualified immunity, which some states are are doing away with, which I think is a good thing. You know, qualified immunity that pretty much gives police officers the ability to state they felt like their life could have been in danger. And, you know, obviously you can't prove feelings, but if that's your argument, then you're good to go. Even if you killed someone that shouldn't have been killed. And it's a way to actually hold police officers accountable. And, you know, going after their pensions and giving them prison time and stuff like that, I also think it's a good thing. Some people try to make a weird argument with, oh, but how are you, you going to penalize the family of, of this person? With, you know, they already lost their job and now their pensions too and stuff like that. And I don't think that's the case. I mean, there are, when you fuck up at your job and any other job, like you have those financial repercussions that do impact your family as well. You lose your job. You could lose your your investments, your pension. You know, doctors have malpractice fucking insurance for when they fuck up. Lawyers can be disbarred. Like, you lose your livelihood. That's part of it. Like, do your job well. And again, it's not a defund the police thing. You know, like, we don't say defund the doctors. But it's a better trained group of individuals will do their jobs better. And we should expect them to. We shouldn't pay them shit expect them to do everything and do it well like of course that's not gonna happen in any fucking profession and again i want our police officers our heroes to be able to protect themselves hence the fucking od better training and if you have to kill someone if your life is actually on the line of course do that use the deadly force but when that's like the trigger happy go-to which it seems to be for all of these shitty cops Again, not all cops, just all of the shitty ones. Then yeah, fuck them. But I digress. Here's the post that I'm going to read and share. And I'll close the episode out with this. It's titled, A Disappointing Time. And I posted it onto my website, spuntoday.com forward slash free writing on June 4th, 2020. It's a disappointing time on so many levels. From so many angles. POV after POV after POV, tainted with the tinge of distrust. Where we no longer expect the next man or woman to do what's right by default. Where winning an arbitrary tug of war means more than lives, means more than liberty, more than duty, more than decency and respect. This isn't the world our parents handed over to us, and it's not the one that we'll pass on to our children. We're letting societal cancers consume us. Shout out to the extreme left and extreme right. We're better and more resilient, but we're not acting that way. We're at our worst right now. Let's level up. And I wrote that on Sunday, May 31st, 2020 at 1.23 a.m. 
we're at our worst right now. And I mean that in terms of the division within the country. Let's level up. And within the context of what we're speaking about with the George Floyd murder, leveling up means obtaining justice, which we're on the track to doing, but implementing real, true, tangible, practical changes within our justice system and within the realm of police training that will both keep our heroes and police officers safe, as well as our communities, our families, and friends. And that's the episode, folks. Episode 179 of the Sponsor Today podcast in the books. I appreciate the fuck out of each and every one of you guys for listening. I hope you'll stick around and listen to a few ways that you can help support this podcast if you so choose. Peace. Hey, folks. Tony here. If you're enjoying the show, do me a favor. Rate and review it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to help out the show in other ways, I'll give you a one-stop shop of sorts to do so. Go to sponsorate.com forward slash support. That's where you'll find a ton of different ways to help support this show, such as shopping on Amazon. If you do any shopping on Amazon, like most of the world, I ask that you do so by clicking on any of the Amazon banners on my website. This will take you to Amazon where you can do your shopping like you normally do. It will not cost you anything extra, but I will get credit for driving traffic to their website. Speaking of Amazon, they fulfill a bunch of the merch that I have available. If you go to spuntray.com forward slash support, you're going to find a brand new merch section where you'll find the iconic podcasts versus anybody super soft premium cotton t-shirt you'll also find the legendary spun today podcast tee which is in the style of the new york city plastic thank you bags logo for my fellow dominicans out there i have a dope dominican escudo t-shirt you know where the lacoste or polo shirts have their little logo picture that but instead a dominican escudo all available now in a variety of different colors for men and women in all sizes. In the Spun Today merch section, which again is at sponsoraycom forward slash support, you'll also find a bunch of other t-shirt designs, long sleeve t-shirts, short sleeve t-shirts, color changing coffee mugs, and much, much more. Check out all the merch at sponsoraycom forward slash support. All of my short stories can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash short stories. The free writing pieces that I read, share, and review during the free writing session episodes of this show can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash free writing. There you can read all the pieces that made the podcast as well as tons and tons of others. My books are available in any digital format of your choice, whether it's Kindle, Apple's iBooks, Kobo, you name it. They're also available in paperback. You can check them out at spuntoday.com forward slash books. My debut novel, Fractal, is a sci-fi time travel story of a group of righteous travelers that attempt to right the wrongs of the injustices of the past. My nonfiction, Make Way For You, is a collection of tips for getting out of your own way. So if you need some motivation, inspiration, and a good old-fashioned kick in the ass, that'll be the read for you. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash books or search for those titles on Amazon. Another great and free way that you can help support this show is by subscribing to my newsletter by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe. You'll get a photo, podcast, video, quote, and word of the week every single Monday at noon. What else do you have to look forward to on a Monday? Plus, you'll be the first to know whenever I publish a new book. And if for whatever reason you choose to, you can unsubscribe at any time. Go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address, and you'll get the very next one. At spuntoday.com forward slash support, you'll also find links to my Patreon, Ko-fi, and PayPal donation pages. Patreon and Ko-fi allow you to make recurring donations per episode, and you even get some bonus content for doing so. PayPal allows you to make a one-time donation to the show. 
for my fellow writers and creatives out there, a really cool way for you to be featured on this show is to respond to my five question Spun Today questionnaire. I'll read your responses on a future episode of the show and share them with the Spun Today community. Think about it. If your responses could potentially spark inspiration in someone else, why not share that? To do so, go to spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at spuntoday on both those platforms. Check out and like the Spun Today Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash spuntoday. I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to the Spun Today YouTube page. Just search for Spun Today on YouTube or click on any of the YouTube icons on my website. There, you'll not only get the full versions of this podcast, but you'll also get bonus content like shortened episode clips and much, much more. And as always, folks, substitute the mysticism with hard work and start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. Thanks for listening. I love you, Aiden. I love you, Daddy.